welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. It's good to be back. I, I've watched some of the videos on uh, the internet of Tim preaching. I wonder what, you ever wonder what's going on in there? I'm going to tell you, all right? Mud wrestling. It's, that's what's going on in there. But uh, at any rate, uh, it's great to be here. I feel like this has kind of become my home away from home. You know, pastors love to say on Sunday, oh, it's so nice to see you. And in the era of masks, we say, oh, it's so nice to almost see you. And uh, the, 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 we're going to go inside next week. And after that, the masks are going to come off sooner or later. Praise God for that. Don't you love it how people say, I'm so sick of this mask? I mean, have you heard anyone say, I love this mask? No, of course we're sick of the mask, but uh, uh, it's good to be, and I don't have to wear a mask, and you do for a while, but, <laughs> but at any rate, my name is Reed. I'm from Santa Barbara. Uh, I've had the privilege of teaching here a few times, and I just want to tell you, thank you. Uh, you are in the midst of a five-week study of, of the purpose statement of this church, and I want to thank Tim uh, before you for, for letting me be a part of that, and also he's given me the best one, so <laughs> what a generous guy he is, but uh, uh, thank you, Tim. But I, I have uh, a passage for us, and I, I want you to hear it, and I don't see too many Bibles, but you, it's in Romans chapter 11, verse 33 to 38, and if you can get there quickly, great, but, but I want you to listen to God's Word, and then we're going to look at it and ponder it. Paul says this in, in Romans 11. He, he's, he's written what most people think is his greatest letter. He's ponderous, and he, he takes us through all of the gospel, and all that God is, and all that God has done, and all of our problems, and at the end of chapter 11, he builds to a crescendo, and I think everything that comes afterwards, and there's a lot of chapters afterwards, it's really epilogue. But here's what Paul says. Just hear the word of God. He says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has understood the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we live in an era of purpose statements. Have you ever heard of a company called Patagonia? Uh, they're based in Ventura. And if you go on their website, you can't get very far before seeing their purpose statement. Listen to this. I mean, they didn't aim low. <laughs> they said, we are in business to save our home planet. That, that's big purpose. That's good luck to them. <laughs> Have you heard of Amazon? You, you can go online and buy something and it'll be at your door within an hour. <laughs> and, and they have a purpose statement. Listen to this. Our mission is to continually raise the bar of the customer experience by using the internet and technology to help consumers find, discover, and buy anything. 
<laughs> anything you want, and empower business businesses and content creators to maximize their success. We aim to be the Earth's most customer-centric company. Wow, that's a purpose statement. So my wife, Lisa, she's the only wife I have, uh, she, she and I, were, we just went to the Grand Canyon and we went backpacking, which is, uh, you got to do that sometime. If, if you can get back up, it's worth it. But, uh, <laughs> but we, then we went hiking in Utah and we were coming home, we stopped in St. George and we went to Rigotti's Wood Fried Pizza. Anybody been there? Unbelievable pizza. Almost as good as all the pizza you've got here in Carmel. I mean, just really great pizza. And it's a pizza joint where you drink your Coke out of a styrofoam cup. It's not an elegant restaurant, not terribly expensive, but really, really good. And I noticed on the wall two big plaques that had, on the one hand, there was the, the purpose statement of the restaurant, and you can guess what it was. We have handcrafted pizza in a handcrafted oven, and the mozzarella is from contented buffaloes in Naples, Italy, and the flour is really good. And, you know, we want to make the best pizza possible, and they, got, they did. Next to that was another statement of our values, and the values were that every employee is a part of the family, and every employee is valued and is a leader, and furthermore, every customer becomes a part of the family. I'm thinking, I just wanted a pizza, now I have a new family. But, you know, that's what you get in Utah, I guess. <laughs> well, if pizza joints and Amazon and Patagonia have purpose statements, how much more appropriate that a church has a purpose statement, right? That, that we know what we're up to and what we're about. So if, if I were to ask you, what, what's the purpose of Carmel Presbyterian Church, you know, there'd be a lot of answers, or ask any evangelical out there, you know, what's the purpose of your church? You might hear, well, we sing a few songs, we get a good sermon, and, and we laugh a little bit, and we go home. Well, our goal this year is to make budget during times of COVID-19. Uh, one of the most popular answers is the church is all about connecting, getting people connected together. And, and we, we become friends, and we study the scriptures together, and we pray together, and we play golf, we sip some wine, and we see each other through the seasons of life. These are, by the way, these are all good things that I'm putting up. Uh, maybe, I was a pastor for 39 years in the same church, and I think some people might say the purpose of the church is to find a place to gripe. <laughs> uh, no, 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 that's a bad one. Uh, the purpose of the church is to bring people to Christ, make converts. Okay, here's my thought for the day. Those are all good, but Carmel Presbyterian Church has a better purpose statement than all of those. We glorify God and make disciples by connecting people to Christ through small acts of, love, of great love every day. This morning, we're just going to look at three words. We glorify God. We glorify God. We glorify God. We glorify God. God. Wow. <laughs> what I love about your purpose statement is it begins with the main thing. And the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, right? We glorify God. Where does that come from? Three words that point to the main thing of not only of our life together as a church, but they point to the main thing of our lives as individual believers 
And furthermore, we can go really big with this. Those three words, we glorify God, point to the main thing of the whole universe. There is nothing more important in the whole universe than the glorification of God. And I have one thing to say this morning. If you get this, I'm going to drive back to Santa Barbara. A happy guy. There is nothing more important in the universe than the glorification of God. We glorify God. All right, what does that mean? Glory, for me, is one of those words. If you say it once, you think, I know what that means. If you say it 25 times, I get confused. Glory, 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 glory. What does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, the word glory is kavod or kabod, if you want to pronounce it that way. And literally, it means weight, W-E-I-G-H-T. By the way, Luke greeted me this morning. He said, hey, you look like you're about 191 pounds. I said, no, 189. <laughs> but, 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 but weight, and, and the, the word was used in the ancient Near East to refer to the clothing that a king would wear. They were heavy clothing that, that expressed his glory. But in the Old Testament, this word has moral dimensions. It, it, it speaks of moral purity. God is holy, 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 and Isaiah trembles in the face of this holy God. That, that's the glory of God that he saw, and it, it, it's, it allows Isaiah to see his, his moral ineptitude. Go to the New Testament, and you get the word doxa. You sing a doxology at the end of a service sometimes, and that is a gloryology, singing glory to God. And in the same way, that word doxa refers to the, the moral splendor of God. Now watch this. When we say that we have a goal of giving God glory, that's so important that we get this, we are not saying let's make something really small look big. That's what a microscope does. You, you look, take a little tiny bug and you look at it and it's huge as you look in that little hole, Right? But the bug is really small. No, no, no. When we say we're giving God glory, we're saying let us see something that's massively large in all of its already splendor. So if you go to the Hubble telescope and look at Jupiter, you see something that is huge. And the telescope allows you to see the bigness of what is already there. That's what we mean when we say we're giving God glory. We're not adding anything to his glory. We're giving him the, the, the glory that is his due. Now, other than the glory of God, nothing else in the universe is an end in itself. I imagine this group, uh, somebody bought a car in the last year. And if I said, well, why did you buy your car? Well, I got my car because I wanted... My old one was old, and I wanted to get from here to there with comfort and safety and all the distractions that are possible in a new car. <laughs> you know, you've got a television set over there and this and that and the other thing. And, and uh, so, okay, so great. you got the new car. Why do you want to get from here to there? Well, i got to get to the grocery store. Why do you need to get to the grocery store? I need to get some food to feed my family. Well, why do you need to do that? They're, they're hungry, and my kids need to grow up. Well, why do they need to grow up? Well, so that they can grow older and... Get a car. <laughs> why, why does your child need a car? Well, so he can go to the grocery store. You, you see the circularity? Sooner or later, there has to be a, a reference point 
bigger than what we're talking about. Sooner or later, there has to be a purpose to which all other purposes point, or the universe is ultimately meaningless. We're just a bunch of little mites on a plum squabbling with one another. Unless there's something outside that is bigger. Church, everything exists for the purpose of giving God glory. Get this. (laughs) This is huge. God's purpose is to give God glory. It's true. Now, we just looked at Romans 11, verses 33 to 38, and I want to unpack four things very, very briefly in the passage. The passage tells us four things that we can never do even if we tried, okay? In other words, I'm not saying, don't ever do this. No, you couldn't do these things even if you tried. Number one, Paul says, we can never plumb the depths of God, verse 33. Again, Romans is thought of as Paul's greatest letter. It's his most systematic. It's his most thorough. He talks about God's glory, God's wrath, our sin, his marvelous provision for us in Christ, that Christ was made a propitiation for our sins. It is a very leisurely exposition of everything that we ought to believe. It's a marvelous book. By the end of chapter 11, Paul has taken us through everything pretty much. And it, I, I think, I don't know this, but he, he, he had a secretary named Tertius. We learned about him in the last chapter of the book. I think Paul said, okay, I need to hear what I've written. And I think Tertius read to Paul the whole letter. And that's where we get Romans eleven thirty three to 38, where Paul said, oh, my gosh. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. We can never plumb the depths. You live on the ocean, I live on the ocean. The ocean covers 71% of the Earth's surface. On average, it is 13,000 feet deep. That's pretty deep. That means you'll never go there. (laughs) But if you had one of those little submarines and you could get to the bottom of the ocean... Do you know, if you were relating that to God, you would just be scratching the surface. You can never plumb the depths of God. His beauty is such that you, for eternity, will never grow tired of gazing at his beauty. His character is such that that we will always be learning more about God. Sometimes when people die, people say, oh, well, your dad's in heaven and he knows it all now. No, he doesn't. We will always be learning more about the character and the majesty and the wonder and the glory of God. His love is such that it will never be exhausted. His glory is such that his radiance, get this, his radiance will never be boring. We will always find something to be interested in, more interested in as time goes on. John Calvin, he must have been a Presbyterian, he wrote a commentary on Romans, and he put, put it like this. He says, oh, the depth. He's talking about this verse. This expression of wonder ought greatly to avail to the beating down of the presumption of our flesh, our pride. For after having spoken from the word and by the spirit, John Calvin says, Paul, being overcome by the sublimity of so great a mystery, he could not do otherwise than wonder and exclaim that the riches of God's wisdom are deeper than our reason can penetrate. We can never plumb the depths. 
Number two, we can never exhaust the mind of God. I mean, if we had a leisurely time together and I took 15 minutes and read Romans 9, 10, and 11, I, I dare say some of us would be so offended we would say, I'm not sure I agree with Paul. Because Paul talks about predestination. He talks about God raising some people up to display his glory by punishing them. I mean, it's, these are hard, hard chapters. But, but what Paul's telling us in verse 34 is... Uh, you can never exhaust the mind of God. Your protests are not impressive to God. He's not impressed with your opinion. He doesn't need to justify his ways to you. He's not even looking for your approval. Paul restrains our audacity and our pride by comparing our mind to the mind of God. I like it to put it like this. If we want to understand the mind of God, we ought to think of ourselves as a little tiny ant crawling up a skyscraper in New York City trying to understand how the building was engineered. It's beyond the ant's capacity, isn't it? Well, multiply that by a million or so, and that's the difference between your great mind and the mind of God. Number three, verse 35. We can never place God in our debt. No one can give to God in such a way that God owes him or owes her. And we think we can. We, we, that's kind of the religious way of life is, you know, I do some good stuff. I tithe and I treat my kids well and I bathe my dog and all these sorts of things. And, and because I'm a good person, well, certainly God owes me. He owes me a pretty good life. I mean... You've heard this. Maybe you've heard it from your own soul where something goes drastically wrong and you think, what did I do to deserve this? Well, you know, that's an equation. What you're doing in that, with that question, you're saying, gosh, I've, I've been good enough. God should have been a little bit better to me. And Paul says, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Uh, number four, verse 36 we can never make too much of God. Uh, back to your purpose statement as a church, we glorify God. It's the, it's the place to start. It's also the place to stop. The, the, the purpose of Carmel Presbyterian Church is to glorify God. You can never make too much of God. Period. You can never do that in your own life. I've been a pastor a long time. I've done a lot of funerals. And I tell you, when people die, you would think everybody was actually Jesus, you know? Because you go to these funerals. I've never, I've never done a funeral for somebody who's not a lot like Jesus. Do you, know, you know what I'm talking about? Well, the fact of the matter is none of us is a whole lot like Jesus. And Paul comes along and says, it's not that God makes so much of us. It's that we are privileged to make so much of him. All things are from him, through him, and for him. So what's the main point? The truth is this, that there is nothing more important in all the universe than glorifying God. All the Bible points to this truth, all of it. The purpose of rocks and trees and lakes and stars, and protoplasm, and amoeba, and grains of sand, and rivers, and mathematics, and nations, and rain, and wind, and cooking, 
and seasons and grass and wind and fog and leaves is the glory of God. Is that in the Bible? It is. Let me give you a whirlwind tour. God says, God says, Isaiah 43, verse 20, he says, the wild animals honor me, the jackals and owls, because I provide water in the desert and streams in the wasteland <clears throat> to give drink to my people, my chosen people, whom I formed for myself, listen to this, that they may proclaim my praise. God's gifts, our praise. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, talking about the church, he says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Why did God send Christ to begin the church? So that we might give him glory. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in accordance with the purpose of his will. That's what God does. He works out everything in, in accordance with the purpose of his will. Paul says, In order that we who place our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. So your purpose statement is spot on. Now, some right now might be wondering, well, what about me? Am I chopped liver? <laughs> if it's all about God and his glory, what about me? What about my little life? Does God care about my happiness? Well, let me ask, answer the question with a question. Look at the, you don't have the passage in your mind, but think through the passage. Uh, what do you think the most important word in this passage is? Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. What's the most important word? Riches, wisdom, knowledge? By him, from him, for him? I'm going to suggest to us the most important word in the passage is the first one. Anybody remember what it was? Oh. You want to say, you want to learn how to say O oh in Greek? O. Oh. <laughs> it, it's a single letter in the Greek New Testament. It's an omicron. That's a long O. And if you want to pronounce it, you just say O. Oh. I, I think that is the most important word in these verses. But you don't say O. Oh. <laughs> you say oh. I mean, this is surfer talk. Awesome. Oh, it's a spontaneous shout of praise by the apostle. Oh, he's, he's heard what has been read to him by his secretary and what he had written in, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, oh. I mean, some of us in the last few minutes have wondered about the self-centeredness of God. You think, gosh, God seems pretty self-centered. And maybe you've wrestled a little bit in your mind because you're not so sure God should be so intent about his own glory, so self-preoccupied, self-absorbed. And you're wondering, who does this God think he is after all? Where do I fit in? I, I want to answer that objection in two ways. On, on the one hand, God is not really, I've already said this, but he's not really worried about your question here. 
Isaiah 45, verse 5, he says, I am the Lord, there is no other. Which is sort of like saying, stop it. <laughs> but let me answer the question. It's a, it's a, it's a legitimate objection. Let me, let me answer it in one other way. Think of a wedding. At the end of the proverbial aisle stand the bride and the groom, and they're enraptured with one another. And we've kind of neutered the vows a little bit, but in the old days in England, the groom would, would ha stand before his bride with a, with a ring, and he would say, with this ring, I thee wed. Get this. He says, and with my body, I thee worship. And with all my worldly wealth, I thee endow. This is old England, patriarchal society. The husband had the property. The husband had the money. And he says to his bride, it's all yours. What is he saying? He's saying, I want you to be my wife, and I am going to give you everything that I am. My gift to you ultimately is me. And she receives that gift, and, and Lord willing, they have a great marriage. When God comes to us and says, I want you to give me glory, he is not eclipsing your quest for happiness. God wants glory. You want to be happy. God's gift to you ultimately is God. God's gift is God. The gift of the gospel is God. It's not that God gives us perfect health and, and a, a great job and our kids grow up and get great jobs and so on and so forth. No, God's gift to us is himself. And what the gospel does is it reshapes our appetites. So where formerly we were hostile to God, Romans chapter 5, we were enemies of God. Now we find our supreme delight, if I say it, the supreme happiness in God himself. God comes and changes those appetites so that we can make much of him and receive much from him. I like what one writer said, the gospel delivers us from the snore, S-N-O-R-E, the snore of religious boredom into the thrill of delighting in God. So the most important word in the passage is oh. If you take that out, the passage simply falls flat in my mind. God has turned our enmity into love. He's turned our hostility into affection. He's turned our duty into delight. The gospel takes dead, spiritual, dry bones and gives them life where they dance and sing and joy uh, and, and enjoy the presence of God. The gospel is God lifting us beyond what I'm going to call our pedestrian pursuits to see what is truly beautiful, what is truly worthy of our affections, to see something that will captivate us for eternity. At the center of all this is the truth that God exists to be glorified and the truth that your quest for happiness will ultimately be found and fulfilled only in him. Well, I am just about done. And I'm going to ask that age-old question, what do we do with this? I mean, there it is. I guess we could say end of Bible study. What do we do with this? 
And I could, I could go through the typical list, you know, well, let's start reading our Bibles more, and let's have more prayer meetings, and let's do this, and let's do that, and, and that, that'd all be good. I mean, the, the Christian disciplines are wonderful. But I'm going to suggest something very simple for us today, that we, for ourselves and for our church, that we pray that God would teach us how to say truly, oh, Uh, hear this, the ministry of Carmel Presbyterian Church will never be louder than the volume with which we utter the word, oh. The surrounding community will see right through you. They will see right through us, and they will intuitively understand whether we're taken with God or taken with the program. And when we are taken with God, the watching world will want in. They'll want to say, oh, with us. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to say that one word in our own hearts. We want to say, oh. But we need your help, Holy Spirit. We ask that you would come in right now and and create in us a heart that loves you more than our work, than our play, than our exercise, than our portfolio. We pray that that word, oh, would drown out all the pleasures of of this world that are inappropriate and would diminish the pleasures of this world that we would be tempted to turn into idols. God, make us a people who say, oh. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.